The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. everyone and welcome to the Trinity Long Room Hub online for this special lunchtime discussion, Voices of the Past, Understanding Our Impact. My name is Eve Patton and I'm Director of the Trinity Long Room Hub. Many of you joining us know that the Hub is Trinity's flagship institute for scholarly and interdisciplinary research in the arts and humanities. Uh, the Hub building itself, which we'd normally be in, is 10 years old this year and that makes it I think even more felicitous that we're marking the 10th anniversary as well of a major research venture, the 1641 Depositions Project. And this project made publicly available online a unique source of information about the 1641 rebellion in its various contexts. Uh, the Depositions Project was also a pioneering initiative. It not only excavated for us the, the vivid and, and the sometimes visceral landscapes of the 17th century rebellion, it also brought together the skills of historians, manuscript and language scholars, and computer scientists in a really extraordinary collaboration. So what we want to reflect on today is how this venture took shape but also what kind of impact it's had in those 10 years, both inside the university and also, also outside in educational and public life. So what is the story of the 1641 Depositions Project and how has it mattered to us? So thank you for joining us. Please, if you're on Twitter, do tweet uh, the, the uh, hashtag hub at 10 or the hashtag hub matters are in operation. And after we've heard from our invited speakers, we hope we'll have some time for questions from you. So please put your questions into the Q&A box at the bottom of the screen and do add your name and, and if you like, say where you're writing from. Uh, I now want to introduce our speakers for this session. I'm joined by the 1641 Depositions Project uh, Principal Investigators, Jane Olmeyer, Mihalo Shokru, uh, John Morrill and also Giovanna Lima, who's the Arts and Humanities Research Impact Officer at Trinity. To introduce them in a little bit more detail, Professor Jane Olmeyer is the Erasmus Smith Professor of Modern History at Trinity. Uh, she's also my predecessor at the Trinity Long Room Hub. She is Chair of the Irish Research Council uh, and Jane is currently working on a book, Colonial Ireland, Colonial India, and I know she'll be talking about this when she gives the prestigious Ford Lectures in Oxford in January uh, 2021. Professor Miholo Shokru is Professor in Modern History at Trinity. Uh, his primary research focus is on the Irish political, constitutional, urban and military history of the 17th century. Mihol is active in, in a number of collaborative projects with colleagues in Scotland, England and Ireland, most notably the Down Survey of Ireland. Uh, and I hope we'll have time to hear a bit more about that later. He's also involved in the Fargo map collection and the books of survey and distribution. 
Professor John Morrill, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the Hub because he was a visiting fellow with us uh, for uh, 2019 and indeed is one of our very reliable uh, friends. John taught at the University of Cambridge from 1975 to 2013. He's now Emeritus Professor of British and Irish History there and he's a life fellow of Selwyn College. Uh, John was Vice President of both the Royal Historical Society and the British Academy and he has a special interest in the public engagement with the humanities. Uh, his many publications include several works on the historical relationship between Britain and Ireland. And John was the, one of the principal investigators on the 1641 Depositions Project. He was also the chair of the Committee of Management. And again, we'll be hearing a little bit more about that a bit later on. Uh, and finally, I want to welcome Dr. Giovanna Lima. Uh, Giovanna joined the Trinity Longroom Hub as our, our research impact officer and this is the first role of its kind in Trinity. Giovanna's job is to shape and support the ways in which we communicate the superb research that emanates from Trinity's arts and humanities community. Uh, she's been a tremendous asset to us so let me also thank the Dean of Research Professor Linda Doyle who had the imagination to put this role into play in the first place. Uh, the 1641 Depositions Project has given Giovanna and the team a tremendous opportunity to put together what is the first research impact case study of its kind. I hope you'll see the link appearing for this document in the chat and those of you joining us on Zoom I think will already have received this case study and you'll have seen if you've had time to look at it uh, the, the, the relevance and the magnitude of the project and also the way in which we're thinking about its impact. So Giovanna, perhaps I could start the conversation with you because you have been the person leading the effort to capture and to report on the many diverse impacts which have arisen from the 1641 project. But in the very first place, why do we need to think about the impact of arts and humanities research projects? Thank you so much, Eve. It's lovely to be here with you today. Um, I'll begin with a fact. Excellent research has impact. So when writing about the impact of a research project, which was the case with the 1641 we are launching today, it is less a question of if there was impact, but what it was. Who benefited from the project? How they benefited? I suppose we can start thinking of the value of articulating these benefits of arts and humanities research projects based on who we are communicating these impacts to, because that's always a choice when we're writing this type of material, right? So we're articulating these impacts to the team itself, to our peers, to our own institutions, and to our partners, to our funders, and of course, to the general public, society as a whole. So I'll start with the team, with whom I'm so excited to be sharing the floor today. There's a real value of looking back, understanding, and celebrating the achievements of the research project. It's quite common that we celebrate the project being done, but not necessarily its ripple effects. That is the use of that knowledge or technology that, generate, that was generated by the research project. So we need to remember that it, impact does take time to develop. So, so it's good to take some time to, to do that, particularly in the arts and humanities, because Changes in attitudes, perceptions, identities, cultural practices are complex processes that usually are the most in common impacts for the arts and humanities, but also are the, not only the more, more difficult to grasp, 
capture and report, but also take time to unfold. So reflecting about the project's impact gives the team this opportunity to rejoice on its success, but of course also address any pending issues that would help keep the success going or new ideas or relationships that now can be advanced. We, and this was of course true with the 1641 impact case study. I was so glad to see that the team had already been captured great material about its impact, such as the numbers of users of the website and some of the research projects that came after 1641, after this amazing partnership that was established. But out of the process of writing the case study, there was also a real push to overcome some technological issues with the websites and also to improve the citation feature for the depositions, for example. So it's really for the team a moment to take stock, be aware and celebrate, which are, we are doing today, but also think about the future, which we have been doing extensively since starting this process. Um, and then we have our peers, of course, our own community within our disciplines. There is a value for our peers in being able to understand and really be inspired by the success of our project, while it also gives great opportunity for engaging and collaborating more widely. So today we're exploring this flagship digital humanities project, which can inspire the next generation of arts and humanities researchers to reflect on their own impact and engage with the 1641 team to learn more or to collaborate with new or, or existing projects. So it's really an opportunity for a conversation about what we are creating as a community and where we can and want to go as a community. And here I want to make another important point about research impact and impact assessment as a whole. It's an opportunity to reflect about our paths, position ourselves as researchers and as a community to where we want to be and who we want, how we want to tell these stories. So it's important that these endeavors are taken to meet our needs for our own purposes. It's not about being forced into a model, particularly one that are biased against our disciplines, but really an effort to tell our story in a way that's true to our values and practices as a community, while also sharing qualitative and quantitative data that supports all of this. So we're also immersing these complex structures. So it's not only about the team and our community, of course, in, in our case, Trinity is our institution, but it could also be Aberdeen or Cambridge to use the 1641 example. But, uh, we should go beyond the accountability value of showcasing the, the impacts of, to our institution and our partners. Here I want to point out to a broader concept of what it means to be a Trinity researcher, what are the, we are collectively achieving, and how we're building the world we want to, to live in, as it states in our research charter. So I suppose this is also true when we're talking about our funders, when we understand and capture our impacts, both academic and societal, uh, we are able to articulate how these benefits uh, and then can influence policy, funding policy. And this is also true for 1641. We will hear later today in the evening showcase from the former head of the Arts and Humanities Research Council about a whole stream of funding for the digital humanities that really ties back to 1641. So not only we can report back to our funders on a accountability perspective, but also uh, we have these stories, this hard data and lovely narrative that translates the diverse and powerful social, political, cultural impacts that comes from arts and humanities research. And finally, articulating the impact to society is also, of course, really important of, to influence research funding. We need society to understand the backup investment in arts and humanities research. But more than that, articulating this impact will help people understand how the arts and humanities matter to their everyday lives. So, they can really illustrate how the world, in the, today's world, the crucial contributions for our, from our research, how we're analyzing, interpreting, providing critique, 
creating with rigor and clarity is fundamental to build a meaningful and valuable life to all. So something that I can't neglect to, to mention is that, of course, more specific groups within the general public will benefit differently from the project's results. In the case of 1641, the, this was true for schools and students, as we reported in the impact case study, but also for our Irish genealogy hunters, as we were able to read this week on the piece written by Professor Michal in Irish Central. So I understand there's great value in, in articulating the impacts coming from the arts and humanities projects to these different audiences or stakeholders, as we also call them. And this can and really should be done in an authentic way that helps us tell our stories and exemplify our contributions to society. Thank you so much. I'm sorry, I can't hear Eve. I, apologies, I didn't unmute. One of the challenges we've had, Giovanna, of course, with impact is thinking back over such a long period of time, 10 years since the start of the project. So maybe I could turn to Jane to go back over that decade. Jane, what did you hope to achieve with the project in the very first place? You know, Eve, I'm gonna answer that, but before I do, I just wanna thank you and the hub for making this possible, to thank Giovanna for prompting us to do it in the first place. Um, but also the new website is being launched uh, uh, today as well. And that new website wouldn't have happened without many people. It takes a village to do a project like this. Um, and we just wanna thank our colleagues uh, in the Trinity Library, the Digital Repository of Ireland, ADAPT and the Dean of Research, Linda uh, uh, Doyle, who uh, along with the History Department, uh, and the library uh, help fund that revamp of, of, of the website. So just a big, big thank you to you all. But why did we do it in the first place? For centuries, the depositions had been abused and used in a very propagandistic and polemical way. Um, and what we really wanted to do was make them available in their entirety. And I must say back in 2003 and four, I had just come to Trinity um, and Michal was then at Aberdeen. We were thinking about it probably quite selfishly from the perspective of historians and, and, and wanting just to, to, to see this material uh, uh, available widely. But then it became very clear to, to us that this was a hugely ambitious project and it, it could only be achieved by putting together a, a team that was truly interdisciplinary. Um, uh, it was about the history, but it was about the language. Uh, it was about looking at the depositions as narrative and obviously the literary colleagues there. The geographical material in it is incredibly rich and that brought the geographers in. But above all, the technology um, led to a phenomenal collaboration with our colleagues in computer science, uh, Vinnie Wade and the late Shay Lawless. I, I, I just feel that Shay is with us today. He died very tragically, but he was such an incredibly important part of that team. But we also worked very closely with our colleagues in the library, Susie Bialetti and the conservationists, uh, uh, our colleagues uh, in the archives. Uh, uh, they know who they are, but Bernard, uh, 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 Jane Maxwell, um, and, 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 and the, many of the others. So it became such a team collaborative effort. But also we knew Trinity couldn't do this alone, partly because there wasn't enough funding in Ireland to do it. And so we teamed up obviously with Aberdeen and, and Michal and with John in Cambridge. So it became a, a, an international project in that sense. Now, we 
in terms of the funding, it's really worried about the funding because actually we knew there wasn't enough money in Ireland, but we did manage to persuade the IRC, its predecessor was called Urchis, the uh, Irish Research Council for the Humanities and Social Sciences. They gave us a kickstart of a grant, quarter of a million, that allowed us to digitize um, uh, 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 Ulster. And then uh, Micheál applied to the AHRC, the Arts and Humanities Research Council. And I'll, I'll let him uh, uh, speak, speak to that. But, but actually, we were very grateful then to the College Library uh, and Robin Adam, uh, Adams, the then librarian, uh, found some additional funding. And I think the total package ended up being about a million euro uh, to uh, allow this uh, uh, to happen. And the fact that we had IBM as our uh, enterprise collaborator and Eniklen, uh, and again, I think Brian Donovan is, is with us today, as is Marie Wallace from IBM, all of this really helped as we went out looking for money. For money, so it was a cracking history project. It was a cracking interdisciplinary project, but it also had uh, these wider uh, connections uh, uh, into the world of technology and digital humanities, and then uh, into enterprise as well. Eve, so so did we know what we would achieve back then? Probably not. It's been a journey and a wonderful journey. Um, uh, uh, but, but but there was always ambition from the beginning, but we just didn't know quite what it was going to uh, turn out to be. Thanks, Jane, and you've given us a real sense, and I remember the excitement around it, you know, the fact that there was, this was a real team effort, but such an innovative team. And I think just to talk a bit more about that, I might turn to, to Michal, because Michal, at the time, you were based in Aberdeen, so you were eligible, along with John, to apply for funding for the Arts and Humanities Research Council of the UK. Then you moved to Trinity, uh, and Tom Bartlett, in turn, filled your shoes as the Aberdeen PI. So we had a kind of geographical musical chairs going on. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how the project looked from your perspective at the time? Um, yeah, absolutely. And I just, uh, you know, I mean, it seems amazing now. I remember those initial conversations with Jane going back over 15 years now. So I mean, to have finally reached this stage of the journey is really wonderful. And the Irish Manuscripts Commission are going to be publishing the final seven of 12 volumes uh, of the depositions in hard copy. And, and despite all the technical innovation that we're talking about as a historian, until I see the hard copies, I want to see the volumes, then, then I know the project is over. So I'm absolutely delighted um, to, to, to finally reach this stage and to thank the Irish Manuscripts Commission as well for, for their engagement with this and to see the volumes in place. So it, it's been a, it has been a wonderful journey. But as Jane has outlined there, it's been all the time collaborative uh, right from the very beginning and from the outset, uh, from those initial conversations right the way through till today. But from an Aberdeen perspective, obviously having access to HRC funding was a game changer because as Jane pointed out, there simply wasn't enough money uh, in the Irish research uh, arena to, to fund this. And, and in fact, almost three quarters of the monies from the research councils came from the HRC. That's the, 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 the way it worked out. And obviously having John in Cambridge was for us uh, obviously key to that. I mean, somebody of such standing uh, within the British system that was uh, also one of the few British historians to genuinely engage with Irish history in this way. And he was the ideal uh, colleague to have with us on this journey. So, I mean, you know, John uh, was, was absolutely key from the outset. But I think really the team that I just like to perhaps just point out here, I think were perhaps the really key people to this, and they are the, the people who ended up transcribing 
this vast source because I remember as a, a postgrad first encountering the depositions and they were on those awful microfilms that you have to sit there and scroll through uh, at great pain to your eyes uh, and it was just almost an impossible task. Uh, and so what we decided very early on with the project that not only would we digitize the images and make them available to scholars, but also that we would try to transcribe this material, which is extremely difficult to read, very difficult handwriting. Some of the material is in very poor condition. And we ended up with an absolutely magnificent team, a trio of uh, uh, Edda, Edda uh, Annalee and Elaine, uh, who uh, were absolutely amazing, I have to say. Uh, and they did for us in three years, which I thought would take probably a lifetime almost, which is to transcribe the entire collection, uh, uh, which is absolutely extraordinary. And they did it to such uh, incredibly high quality. And not only that, but it did it with incredible good humor as well. It was a great fun team to work with, I have to say. Uh, and we really, really enjoyed that whole process. And then overseeing it, of course, we had the doyen of 17th century Irish history in many ways, which is uh, Professor Aidan Clark who was former head of the history department in Trinity. Uh, and, and to have his imprimatur uh, on the whole thing as well just gave the final polish uh, to, to the whole project. So when we look back over the past 15 years, just the extent and the range of colleagues that have been involved, both in England, Scotland, Ireland, and as Jane has said, you know, a, a whole range of disciplines uh, and at, at so many different levels and people involved in every single way. One of the first people I met when I came to Trinity to start working on the very, very initial uh, uh, collaborative um, uh, technology was, of course, Shay Lawless, who, who was with us for most of that journey as well, uh, and, and, and sadly isn't with us today. But looking back on that, it, it just was the most amazing team. And for me, it's really been sort of a highlight of my academic career, just the whole process from start to finish, uh, and, and to finally reach the end of the journey. And it would not have happened without all those individual contributions, but everybody working together uh, and that's what made it happen. Exactly Mihal and, and it's great to hear the, the enthusiasm you still have when you think back on it and anyone who's looked at the digital images of the original documents will have some sense of just how impossible it must have seemed to do that work of, of transcription. Uh, so you know congrats to, to that team as well. Um, and, and on the subject of, of managing the various components of, of the team and the effort uh, John, I might bring you in here because you were the Cambridge PI, but of course you were also chairing the board that had to oversee this enterprise and make sure it was completed on time, that it didn't run over budget. What to you were the big challenges from a Cambridge point of view of, of running the show? Uh, well, managing so many different disciplines and so many different lines in the same room and making it so consensual i mean it wasn't difficult but it wasn't it wasn't in, it wasn't automatic but to get everybody as it were always pulling together was 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 the challenge and i think we, we achieved it uh if we borrow down i mean yes of course we had these three exceptional people actually doing the transcribing it's 19,000 pages which is 6,000 pages each over three years you know which is which is a 2,000 pages a year each which is six pages a day we had to go through this grueling process of selection in which we were desperate to get people with, with complementary skills and we got a really first-rate geographer cartographer we got someone with deep knowledge of military and naval history for the period and we got someone who was just a very experienced editor 
who've been editing things not not to do with 17th century Ireland, but who brought all kinds of gifts to the difficulties of the art of transcription. To get all that and to get them to be able to work efficiently was difficult and it's pretty humiliating in a way to say that we took these very talented postdocs, about 20 of them, and we gave them a, some really difficult um, um, bits of text and say, let's see how far you can get in half an hour. And they had to be accurate and fast. It was no good being accurate. It was going to take you 10 years to do it. It's no good being fast if you actually had to redo it all. And to actually find there were three people from a very small group who passed that test, who also had these extraordinary you know, uh, complementarity. And then to find, of course, this couldn't be entirely predicted. It couldn't be predicted at all, really. But they would get on so well, or they'd work so collaboratively and be more than the sum of their parts. That was pure joy, but it was difficult and it was a real challenge and it needed a lot of preparation to make sure we got the right way of assessing uh, a lot of very talented people who applied. And the other thing, I suppose, was intellectually the big question was, since we're going to have high resolution images of the, all the 19,000 pages, should we transcribe, as it were, literally, or should we modernise? Should we go into modern spelling and punctuation? And if we went into modern spelling and punctuation, the whole thing would be much more searchable. Um, and of course, you could click over to the original. But the problem with doing it literally is there are a lot of proper names which, which need interpreting. And if you interpret them, then you're imposing something. And, and it's going to be very difficult for people to undo that. So we went in the end for literal um, transcription, but it does make it much less searchable. Now, fuzzy search, dirty search, whatever you call it, which we got a lot of help with, minimizes, so it doesn't eliminate that. The big problem, of course, with literal translation is it's inhibitory to our wider audiences, the things that Giovanni was talking about earlier on. If you do it in, in, the, in this phonetic 17th century um, spelling um, or near equivalent to that, often inflect with inflections from, from, from um, Irish, then actually it's quite difficult for people who are not you know, in, the, in, in the academic world to make as much use of it. And that was really, I think, the toughest decision we had to make. Um, I think because it's been so successful um, in terms of uh, its outreach to other people, we probably got it right. But it was a very tough set of choices we had to make. And I think the real quality of our committee was the seriousness with which people disagreed and then finally came to a consensus. And of course, John, that, that's a very important point because none of you wanted this to stay within the confines of academics. This was a, a resource that was going to really become an educational asset. And I know that you, you followed up a little bit on how exactly it has been used as a resource in classrooms and in other educational contexts. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that sense of the direction of the project? Well, I mean, across, across the world, there have been PhDs done on it. There must have been many, many, many more master's theses done. I mean, in Cambridge, there were three PhDs. Um, there are at least two masters. There are a lot of undergraduate dissertations. Um, but beyond that, uh, one of the most exciting things when we first got the statistics for usage of the website was what a very high proportion had non uh, educational URLs. I mean, there were a lot of people using ordinary, you know, computers. Now, most of us who are in the academic game would use our computer, our, our academic URLs to get in. So it was re outreaching a great deal. 
and I'd be, I'm very conscious of the, from my contacts within Ireland and simply being, 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 being watching what's coming out, just how many local projects there have been, how many projects that are linked to, um, to, to the sense of place or the sense of family name and so on. And I think that must be true also amongst the diaspora. Um, and I think it has, it has, and it's also definitely reached schools. And I know in Maynooth, for example, there are there, there are ways of developing it, you know, to make it as a as a more more an easy easy to use package in the sixth form. I've used them with my own, as it were, tidyings up um, in talking to sixth form groups. Um, and there's a group in a very deprived school in the East End of London, made up mainly of Muslims, who find religious conflict something that they're absolutely fascinated by. And by looking at, the, at, the, at that in that context and, and making the links between how, how faith can, de can degenerate into, into violence, um, that's been very fruitful. So yes, I think there's been an enormous impact I, I can't measure it because I don't have access. But if it were, if it's if it's continued the way it began in the first few months, then it has been staggering. Fantastic, and of course, a lot of that impact is hidden from us. But I know that I used it myself when I was with Jane briefly over the summer uh, to do a little amateur local history uh, work um, during lockdown, and it was fascinating to use it in that way. Uh, so I imagine this reach has been. Uh, extraordinary and, and of course isn't quite quantifiable in the way that other things are but in in terms of this broader impact of the project uh, I might come back to you Jane because um, the deposition project has been relevant in a broader Irish political context uh, and the launch of the 1641 project was a very special occasion because of course it was attended by both President Mary McAleese and the late Ian Paisley Lord Banside and, and this was significant because the launch was happening, of course, in a, a tandem with what was going on in a broader uh, context with the Northern Ireland peace process. And I wonder if you could just again recapture for us that connection. Oh, Eve, I think back to a decade ago and uh, we had a symposium in the afternoon. We went over into the long room um, for a truly historic moment. Um, we were very conscious that in the past the depositions had been used to stir up sectarianism and we were determined that they were going to be part of the ongoing peace process uh, and so on the one hand we wanted we were just so privileged that Mary, I'm delighted that Mary McAleese uh, accepted the invitation to launch uh, the depositions uh, a decade ago um, and obviously she's joining us this evening again but we were also very conscious that it was very important to have somebody um, uh, from uh, the other side of the community uh, uh, who would be if you want standing stand side by side with Mary McAleese um, uh, and uh, Ian Paisley was the obvious person to ask and in years gone by he had used the depositions to whip up anti-Catholic sentiments so we felt that if he was willing to embrace this project it was really a signal that you know that that memory was becoming history um, and that we were moving into a very new space on the island and again anybody who was there a decade ago will remember the speeches that they both gave that night mary McAleese, of course was all about bridge building and about uh, bowing to the past without being bound by it and then uh, uh, ian paisley uh, spoke 
with great uh, magnanimity. There was a moment of humor at the end, of course, because he concluded uh, by invoking um, one of Trinity's uh, uh, great graduates. And at that moment, I think everybody was slightly nervous. Who was he going to quote? And it was Sir Edward Carson. Uh, uh, and of course, Carson was famous for saying, God save Ulster. And, and, and Ian Paisley that evening said, God save Ulster. And then he paused and he goes, and the other provinces. And I think it's the closest that Ian Paisley ever came to saying, you know, God save Ireland. And interestingly, that evening, he, in, he invited us to share this um, uh, project with the schools. And actually, we'd already been doing that, Eve. Uh, the Department of uh, Foreign Affairs and Trade, as part of the Reconciliation Fund, had actually uh, uh, allowed us to develop modules aimed very much at uh, uh, 14 uh, year olds and we did this in partnership with the Northern uh, uh, Ireland Council of Integrated Education and so we were able then to take the depositions in especially into integrated schools in Northern Ireland and let them become part of the curriculum. We modernized the spelling on this occasion uh, just to make them more accessible but what was very interesting to me and this is picking up on John's uh, point was actually the way then um, those uh, 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 modules that we developed for the classroom then became the template uh, for other projects. I, I was very involved in a project around uh, the Holocaust and, and the way we had dealt with this very, very dark moment in Irish history then informed them in how they were developing modules for the classroom in the context of, of, of the Holocaust. Um, and again, just, and I, just to pick up on something John has said, I've also found that uh, in my time as the Vice President for Global Relations in Trinity, I would be talking about uh, the Depositions Project, often in conflict zones, uh, and how actually uh, talking about something that happened in Ireland hundreds of years ago resonated uh, with people, uh, particularly in the Punjab, uh, in India, but also in Sri Lanka that had just experienced a very brutal uh, and bloody civil war. And actually it was a, a, a very raw, very emotive conversation with a group of women uh, in Northern uh, Sri Lanka, because my talking about the depositions allowed them then to articulate their own uh, experiences of that civil war. So, so I think that, you know, they are being used in very ways that we didn't even begin to imagine possible, Eve. Um, uh, anyway, uh, that's a, uh, just for us, it was such an important moment that they were going to be used in a constructive and, and positive way, not just here on the island, but, but in yeah. any potential conflict zone. Indeed, Jane. And of course, it's even quite emotional to think about that sense of the project, which was an academic project, having an impact on real world issues and in a real world landscape. And, uh, and, and it, it gives it such uh, eloquence, I think, um, in that regard. But you've also picked up on another aspect of impact, which is that one good and successful research project will often be a model or a template for others, can, can spark other forms of research. Uh, and I know that since the launch of the Depositions Project, 23,000 users have used the website. It's become a flagship, flagship disciplinary, interdisciplinary digital enterprise. It has been a real paradigm for other projects that have happened since. And I know, Michal, this is uh, something that you, you might tell us a bit more about because in the many collaborative projects that you have run and are running, I suppose the 1641 has been a kind of shadow in the background that has given you encouragement perhaps. I wonder if you could tell us about any of the projects that, that it has helped lead to. 
Yeah, no, no, thanks. Um, uh, you're absolutely right. Um, Eva, I mean, this has been, if you like, the launching pad for so much else, uh, particularly uh, for early modern history, and we've used it. And I just, just to sort of build slightly on the, the points that both Jane and John have been making and, and the impact it has, but let's not forget <clears throat> that certainly initially this was about uh, an academic project. And what's really heartening to me is the way that now in both undergraduate classes and postgraduate classes, the depositions are now a source that everybody is using as a matter of course. That would have been unthinkable 15 years ago. In the previous 350 years, there were a handful at most of historians who had ever engaged with that material. Uh, really, I mean, you could count them on the finger of one, of one hand. And now <clears throat> I get essays all the time, undergraduate students who delve in, do, make, do some incredible work with this material uh, and, and almost, I'm, I'm almost sort of jealous of them because I'd love when I was at that stage to have had something like that to work with. And, and now they almost expect it as a matter of course. And the way that the landscape has changed so dramatically in terms of digital humanities in the last decade or so. And since the launch of, of the depositions, as you said, there's been a number of projects all over the place, but Trinity also very much the forum in the down survey, which was one that I, that I was, was, was leading on which of course these magnificent maps of, if you like, the aftermath of the rebellion when the Irish uh, are defeated and the land is redistributed. And we have this extraordinary uh, survey of all of Ireland, all of the maps covering every single parish in the country, going down to that sort of granular detail, and which is a treasure trove for historians, for economists, sociologists, genealogists who absolutely adore it within I think two or three hours of that website going live, a website had gone live in the United States, which was click here to see who stole your land. <laughs> they were straight in there trying to, you know, get down to, you know, the local level, what was going on and the way that this is relevant to such a huge audience of people. Within that first week, over 100,000 people visited the Down Survey website. I mean, huge, huge numbers of people who are interested in this material and want to work with it. And really the depositions for Trinity certainly really was the, the, the platform from which all of this has evolved. And we still have projects that are, are going on at the moment. But to me, the big challenge about all of this and how wonderful it all is, Eve, is we still have to think about long-term sustainability of all of this because it's very, very exciting to begin with. But we want to make sure that this material is available for future generations as well. It's not just for us now, but that in 10, 20, 50, 100 years that this material will still be accessible, still be available for people to work with, whatever their interests. And that remains a huge, huge challenge to us at the moment, because unfortunately, there is no long-term strategy at the moment. And it's one of the big problems and one of the big challenges that we face with regards to all of this. And that's really where our attention is now being directed at the moment. Yeah, exactly. And this question of, of digital sustainability, of course, is something that will, will speak keenly to many people listening, I think, who are involved with similar projects. And it is something that uh, we really need to address and have a, have a plan for. Um, so, so thank you very much for, um, for bringing that up, Michal. Uh, uh, at this point, I think, before our audience rushes off to, to find out who indeed, who did indeed steal their land. Uh, we might go to our audience because we've got some questions coming in. Uh, and I'd like to make sure that, uh, that um, the panel has a chance to respond to these. Um, we have a, a question from Lisa Doyle that's come in. Uh, and Lisa says the transcription and digitization of the depositions has made them accessible to people 
who are not specialists in the area, including school students. And of course, we've talked a little bit about this. Uh, and Lisa's wondering if any of you have received any feedback or responses from the teachers or the students who've used the online teaching modules and, and, uh, and questions and, and, and thought about how they can be engaged with. Uh, so have you had any feedback from uh, teachers in particular, perhaps, or from students who've used the material? I might take that to, to you, Jane, yes. Yeah, well, I can start off, and obviously John and Michal can uh, uh, chime in here. So uh, Eamon Darcy, who's with us this evening, and Mark Sweetman, who's in our School of English, did a lot of hands-on engagement uh, with um, uh, schools in the north, and uh, 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 actually Mark was working with, uh, with local schools here in Dublin too. And it was fantastic to see actually the engagement of um, uh, school children with the depositions. A, they got the technology, but B, I think actually they really, it helped them better understand that whole period of plantation. Um, it allowed them then to explore cultural you know, trauma. Uh, and, 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 and so we did have some very, very, very good engagement, not just with the teachers, but with the students themselves. And we were working very closely with Brendan Tagney and Bridge uh, uh, 21. Uh, and these guys obviously are very skilled at working uh, uh, in the classroom too. Now, what we haven't done, Eve, and this is where Giovanna's Jane, is we haven't actually followed up on that. And we haven't actually gone back to the classroom here a decade on to ask them, well, you know, obviously at the time there was great engagement, and you could see how it was actually very empowering, particularly for the curriculum in Northern Ireland, where there's a lot more flexibility than there was with the history curriculum south of the border. Um, uh, and, 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 and if we should do something, that would be it, to, to follow up a, a little bit with, with that. Thanks, Jane. And John, I know you, you probably want to come in on this, perhaps, and, and uh, even, even an impressionistic sense from the educational context that have used the depositions about how you think it has worked and been received. Well, where it's been received, it's been received very well. Can I just start just going back a little bit, something that was said earlier on. I mean, we need to realise that as late as the 1880s, in the English Historical Review, I mean, the premier journal, a, a really senior and, and good uh, historian of Ireland could write about um, someone who'd done an edition of a few of the... Um, um, of the depositions. They look forward to the day when they would be consigned to the limbo of all that is useless. I mean, writing them off, and the extent to which they were they were totally confessionalized, and the way in which actually really down to living memory, you know, you had a history of Ireland which either said the terrible talked about terrible violence by Catholics uh, by Catholics on Protestants on in 1641, or by Cromwell um, on Protestants in 1651, and nobody ever in, put those two things together or looked at the looked at the connections between them and that's been transformed and it's been transformed because it would take one person 12 years to read all the depositions in the originals and therefore and you didn't know where to start because of the way they're organized geographically and because of the way they're organized higgledy piggledy in terms of chronology it was almost impossible to do a, a really systematic study it's that transformation of searchability that was so important right take that into the classroom um and people now have a resource that they can uh, they need i mean all i may there may be lots of teachers out there who've taken them and used them 
in there because the theme of the religious origins of the of the of civil wars 1640s is a major part of, of many a-level syllabuses they've not been prescribed as far as i know for any of the a-level syllabuses but good teachers are using them as part of the story they're engaging with the kids and everywhere i talk to mainly former students of mine who are teachers they say the kids really latch onto this it may, it helps them to understand the power of religion in a way that the kind of material they normally have to use which are parliamentary speeches and and um things like that just don't do it and so that this has been transformative not only as it were about the uh, early modern ireland but the early modern mind and i think those who engage with them find this is a really good way into understanding uh how we need to understand how other people saw their world how they understood their world and that in itself you know begins to teach them why they take get make the kind of judgments they make because they're bringing all kinds of baggage with them. So in terms of that whole point of how we do history and how, in at least in the British context, how you have to understand uh, what makes a historian think the kind of things historians think, it's, it's transformative. And, and, and I, 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 I think transformative is, is a super word to put in there, John. May I ask a, a question that, that uh, I suppose connects to, to what Lisa has asked? Um, because obviously one of the things that is sensitive about this material is in terms of what it says about politics and religion. But of course the material is also full of quite upsetting details at times about uh, the physical violence um, that the rebellion uh, generated. Did you ever have any anxieties about putting that kind of material into the public domain, particularly when it's going towards a school level? I hope you're the right person to ask. I think I think Mihal's probably a better person to Mihal, ask. I'll, I'll hand over to Mihal on that question, and then we've got some more questions coming in. Were well, the sensitivities about the material of that kind? Yeah, I mean, uh, the material. Some of the material is very graphic and 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 can be quite upsetting. I think context is everything, um, and something like this, Eve, and and you know, it needs to be presented in a proper historical context and to explain and understood so that people can can actually engage with it. But I think the the historical or the focus by historians for centuries on the violence to some degree overshadows the real sort of value of this which John has kind of touched on there where he says it's about it's a window into everyday life and that's why I think people who actually start to read and engage with this are so drawn in by it because it's not the high political it's not the parliamentary or governmental approach or papers etc it's about ordinary people talking about their everyday lives. And that's something we can all relate to, whether we're school children, whether we're academics, whether we are, you know, interested public. And that's what the depositions has. And it's really quite unique in that. So we are getting a, a really extraordinary insight into everyday life. And we hear about what they've got in their homes, how they meet and talk to their neighbors, uh, what they do on their days off. I mean, it, it really is just so rich in that sort of societal information but that to me is the true value of this yes we have to deal with some of the the awful violence that that uh, sort of goes on with the rebellion uh, etc and there's no point in, in in ignoring or glossing over that but the vast bulk of this is actually simply about ordinary people living ordinary lives and that's what makes it quite extraordinary as a historical source
Indeed, and again, it's why it, it's so useful to think of this, not only from a historical perspective, but from a literary perspective too, because it's almost a novelistic or perhaps a cinematic landscape that the depositions have given back to us. Um, that it, it's so vivid in, in what it recreates. I, I want to come to a question from Diren Wallace, and it's for all of you, but I, I might go to Giovanna first on this, because it's about how we think about impact now. Obviously, 10 years ago, uh, it was probably a little bit far down the, the agenda, but if we're putting together a project now, uh, how do we think about measuring and, and monitoring impact, Giovanna, and what do we need to build in using the model of the 1641 example when we, we both put a project into action, but also Diren asks, what do we do when it ends to really heighten this aspect of, of impact? Thank you, Eve. Thank you for the question, Duran. Um, I suppose the most important thing I would say, especially if the project is already ongoing, is uh, thinking about the research impact vision. So when you have a vision of where you want to be and what stories you want to tell after your research project is being done, you can really set up the mechanisms to capture the data you need and capture the testimonials, because of course, this is not about just the numbers. Uh, it's also about it, this transformational power we, we heard, just heard about. So really having this vision, you understand what it is that you want to achieve, who could be benefited from this project. Because uh, at first, like we heard with the first 1641, it may be that you have this academic interest, but then when you start reflecting on, but wait a minute, there's people outside in a, outside academia that can really benefit from this. So if you start thinking about this, you think, okay, so we can engage with these people right now, understand what their needs are, and maybe change outputs from the research project. So having the vision, I suppose it's the first thing. And then when you have the vision and you understand who it is that would benefit from it, you can set up in place systems to capture all of this and also even take action on it. So you reach out to the people, you ask for testimonials, you remember their names 10 years on to, and really uh, impact is also about relationships. So you develop these relationships and they don't die. Uh, 1641 was a great example because uh, there was plenty of projects that came out of it, including with the par external partners, partners like IBM. So um, these relationships last. So this is also true for research users. So if you keep fomenting those relationships after the project ends, it's really uh, important as well for you to be able to capture this long-term impact, which is the most important feature for the arts and humanities research impact. It's very distinctive for the arts and humanities as well. Uh, and the, I suppose the third thing, so the vision, the systems to capture data along the way. So that's my second point. It's really hard to do it retrospectively, right, Jane? Um, but then the third thing is would be time and money, so resources. You really need to invest resources. Uh, if you're still in the writing phase of the proposal, do embed this uh, uh, either an impact case study, but it, not even that, just a relationship building uh, money, time and money uh, in your Gantt chart, in your budget. Uh, to build these relationships, to understand what the needs are uh, beyond the specific, um, specific goals you have as an academic, because then you would be ready to fulfill your impact vision. If you, if you have the vision, you understand who would benefit and, and you put in place those things, you'll be able to tell your story when the research ends. Um, and then, of course, uh, you'll be prepared to 
do all of that when you really set aside some time and money to do all of that. Yeah. Thank you. Indeed. And uh, in fact, we've got several questions coming in to do with the technology that was involved in, in this enterprise. And of course, uh, both John and Michal have spoken uh, a little bit about the, the, the huge technological challenge that, um, that this represented. And I wonder if I can just group those questions and, and perhaps come back to, uh, to John first. I mean, in terms of how technology itself has advanced, if you were embarking on the 1641 Depositions Project today, it would be a very different story. I wonder, is there anything that, uh, if you can think back 10 years, that was most frustrating about trying to embark on the project at that time, when of course the kind of digital skill set that we have now and we take for granted uh, wasn't as widely available? Or the things that you wish you'd known or done 10 years ago that might have made a difference? Well, I think the technology has probably moved on more rapidly than I have. So I'm, um, I think probably there are things other people will, will see um, that, that I don't. I mean, the, the, uh, the, the, in a sense, we gambled on the, the issue I've already raised, which is the, um, the, the problem of actually searching uh, when you've got, you know, phoneticized text and a variant proper names. And we gambled that we would find people, indeed we, we did, um, who could help us with fuzzy search. And, and that turned out to be quite clever because you know, there, are, there are ways of being intelligent in being fuzzy. Uh, you know that people people phonetically misspell things by modern standards, characteristically, not uncharacteristically, and actually sorting that out to make it a manageable problem. I, I don't know the. Um, I mean, what if you look at the website? Uh, it's clear that um, I'm sure there are more there are more ways you can interrogate deeply into the data. Uh, than than it was possible to do ten years ago. We were we were conscious of the needs of linguists. We're capable. We were very aware of the need. Well, one of the things that we haven't, for example, talked about um, is the fact that one of the things that makes it so attractive um, to students is that it it privileges so many female voices. You know, there's such a high proportion of the survivors of the events of the winter of 1641 to our women, and they get a disproportionate opportunity of speaking. Now, in fact, you can um, work out and, and it's time to work out uh, fee, uh, by, by trawling through, you can identify women. But there are lots of ways, I'm sure, in which we, that could have been privileged and made much more, much more accessible. But the sort of technology allows you to do that sort of um, of, of searching for things which in 2007 you didn't realize you'd be searching for. I mean, the way in which the intuitive searching, uh, I'm sure that that could be done in a much, uh, a much more sophisticated way now. But certainly the, the issues on gender, not only of female voices, but of the, of the gendered attitudes of, of both male and female in giving their testimonies um, was one of the, was yet another dimension and that's another dimension to the importance of this project. I mean, this extraordinary, concentrated, um, I mean, let's just make the absolutely explicit that there is no better recorded um, uh, mass killing um, in, in, in European history until, until very recent times. Mm -hmm. So since that is essential to the human condition, 
I mean, killing, killing isn't random. Killing always has some sort of, of, of self-restraint built into it, moral economies built into it. And understanding all that, this is, a, this is what makes it such an extraordinary resource, which, which reaches out to so many different disciplines. I mean, we could we could talk about uh, you know, social, social psychologists. We could talk about sociologists. It's, it, that's what makes it just extraordinary source in terms of the technology. Technology. I think we were we were having to create the range of questions you could ask were constrained by the technology of the time. Yeah. I think you could probably ask a lot more, be much more, much more intuitive in the way. So now Jane and Nihal both want to yeah. comment. And can I can I jump in here as well? I actually think the technology um, we were naive when we began, um, and actually we should have been working with our computer scientists from day one. They came early to the project, but not early enough. One of the fundamental errors we made with the 1641 depositions is we built it in a closed way. We should have done it in a very open way from day one. Now that was our mistake. As a result of that, it's been very hard to migrate and keep the data current. Now we've just had a, done a huge exercise in terms of behind the scenes. The website will look very say, similar to, to, to what everybody recognizes. But the work behind the scenes that had to happen uh, was because of the way we originally built it. So that was a mistake that we made at the outset. And, and obviously, if we were to do it again, we would, do, we would have learned from that. I also think in terms of our engagement with the Digital Repository of Ireland, that should have happened much earlier uh, as well. So because I want to go back to Michal's point about longevity and sustainability, um, we didn't think to build that into the project from day one. In other words, actually building money that would help sustain uh, 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 the depositions website and allow for the updating of it. The other thing that we made a bit of an error about was there've been a whole raft of amazing data sets that have come on board. We've heard about the down survey, but there was another fabulous project called Cultura, which allowed for the normalization of the text. In an ideal world, we should have been able to be interoperable. We should have been able to connect all of these data sets. We didn't. As a result, the Cultura website now is completely dead. We've lost that learning that was achieved through Cultura. So I, I think it was a naivety around sustainability and around the future proofing. Uh, and obviously we're wise after the uh, uh, event. Um, at the, and, and, and it's the interoperability of these websites that actually allows for very sophisticated levels of interrogation, of visualization. Uh, so, you know, it, again, and it's being wise uh, after the event, but the technology has really moved on in a very exciting way. And, and I'll hand over to you, Michal, but the Books of Survey of Distribution, which are now being published by the Irish Manuscripts Commission, now creates a very wonderful opportunity to link the 1641 depositions with the Down Survey uh, and the Petty Maps and the Books of Survey and Distribution, which are the Doomsday Books, if you want. Exactly. To and, and Jane, I, I want to get Michal in before we have to close, but I just want to say that this speaks to lots of questions coming in. Uh, one from Seamus Moriarty, for example, ask, expressing concern about this question of digital sustainability and what kind of finances would be needed to keep projects safe online. Michal, I know that, uh, just, let's just, give you the last word on this. Just very quickly on this, very quickly. First of all, 
Trinity is actually very centrally involved in a project which actually is attempting to deal with this, which is, of course, beyond 2022, um, which is looking at the, the issue of long-term sustainability in trying to recreate the National Archive, which was destroyed in 1922. And that is absolutely central to much of the work they're doing. In addition to that, and the point that Jane has made very well, is the, the issue of interoperability. <clears throat> because within that platform, all these different projects are going to be able to speak to one another, which must happen into the future. Because if you're doing research, you have to, have to be able to do integrated research in a way that you can ask questions across a whole range rather than having to go to each individual silo. And finally, the point is, let's not overhype the technology here, guys. There's a lot of things that technology can't do. Uh, and we still have to have the human interaction here. And we've just spent the last five years trying to do the indexes for the 1641 volumes and to do them in an automated way. And the variant spellings and all the complications of that have proved beyond anything technology can deal with. Technology cannot deal with place spellings from County Cork of their different uh, townlands, etc. And I don't think that will ever happen. So to some degree, you are working with technology and I think people are hoping technology will answer everything for us and do all of the work. It cannot do that. It has to work together with human interaction. And we've seen that the deposition both from good and bad has made those challenges very clear. There are some things that technology will help with in the future, but it will never take the place of people actually having to go and read and work with the material itself. Beautifully put me Holland, and it's clear from what you're saying, we're not at the end of the story of the 1641 project. We're only at the middle point and we must continue these conversations in this broader context. So thank you for that. And, and thank you to all our contributors today, to Jane, Michal, John and Giovanna for taking us back in time to the beginning of the project, but giving us a real sense of its impact since uh, it was launched. To everyone who's listening, please, if you can, join us later on today at seven o'clock this evening. I know there are a few places left if you want to register for our evening showcase on the depositions project. We'll be hearing from the partners on the project, the funders involved. Uh, we'll also have a very special guest appearance from Chancellor Mary McAleese, who of course, as you've heard, was uh, at that very uh, exciting launch 10 years ago. You'll get in the chat, there should be a link going up so you can register if you want to for the evening event. Uh, and this evening will be the formal launch of the revamped 1641 depositions website site. Uh, it'll also mark the publication that uh, the, the team have been alluding to by the Irish Manuscript Commission of the remaining volumes, uh, that very important and very welcome publication. And again, uh, we'll put a link up for you on that. But for now, thank you all very much for joining us. A tremendous conversation. I look forward to seeing most of you, I hope, this evening at seven. For now, thank you and goodbye, everyone. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures. Stamping provenance Languages towards the history to of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.